Good afternoon. Welcome to Pigeon Post. My name is Michael, and it's an overcast day here in Colorado, and I'm glad you're listening. We are starting John 13 through 17, the next uh, four or five days. This is called the Upper Room Discourse, and today is John 13. And it starts off with this really interesting verse that says, Having loved them, excuse me, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so Ben's going to read that for us in a moment. And I want you to maybe think about something. You know, we were talking about death in the last episode and that idea of the end. And um, there's even a, a verse in Jeremiah where God says, what will you do when the end comes? But specifically here, it's focusing on the love that Jesus has for his disciples and for us who are his own and how he loved them and he loves us to the end. I want to ask you, um, maybe you consider yourself a believer, maybe you don't. But aside from Jesus, has anyone ever loved you to the end? Um, have you ever loved anyone to the end? That phrase to the end is really compelling to me. Um, it seems to say a lot about a love that never stops, um, never takes breaks know that even if a a husband and wife managed to stay married their entire life, there were surely times in that marriage where their love waned. But Jesus loved his own to the end. It's interesting, and we'll talk about it more after the reading, but this, this book starts with, in the beginning was the word. And then it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says that he loved his own to the end. So there's something going on there. I'll let Ben read and then we'll talk about it some more. Thanks for listening. The Gospel of John, Chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his time had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he came from God, and was going to God, arose from supper, and laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Then he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, You don't know what I am doing now, but you will understand later. 
Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, Someone who has already bathed only needs to have his feet washed, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew him who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. Okay, so this begins the upper room discourse. You notice that Jesus doesn't start by speaking. He starts by kneeling down, humbling himself, and demonstrating his love for his disciples, and washing their feet. This was repulsive to them because they knew that Jesus was Lord. They respected him as Lord. And you can see that Peter didn't want Jesus to do this. Um, But Jesus insisted on it. Um, It reminds us of Philippians 2 when God calls us to humble ourselves and says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in likeness as a man, or in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. I didn't quote that perfectly, so you'll have to look it up. Philippians, did I say Ephesians? I meant to say Philippians. Philippians 2, 1 through 10. Um, That's what Jesus is demonstrating here. That even though he is Lord, he will be exalted as Lord. That he has come to serve us by being obedient to the point of death here. That's the beauty of the gospel. Um, A side note here, I think we've mentioned before how Jesus um, elevates the role of women and dignifies them and their value. And we've seen a lot of pretty awesome things that were kind of culturally Um, not accepted at that time. The Samaritan woman becomes an evangelist, telling people about Jesus, you know, um, bringing them to to him or him to them, however you want to look at that. Um, The adulterous woman, though shamed in front of everyone, uh, presumably repents as Jesus says, go and sin no more. Um, The Pharisees were not willing to repent. Um, They were just there to accuse. And then we saw... Uh, Mary, Lazarus' sister, wash Jesus' feet, um, or rather anoint them and, and wipe them with her hair. And now we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So we definitely see um, uh, a high view of women. Um, so that whole idea that um, the Bible denigrates women um, I think you can see there's no trace of that in this uh, in this gospel. 
that Jesus uh, respected women and that they were also uh, fully included in the gospel. Um, so this idea of Jesus loving his own to the end, you know, Jesus is called the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He completes what he starts. Um, and John started with, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now it says that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the very end. So Jesus is fully completing his work. Um, he's going to be giving the disciples his last teaching, and it's just very beautiful. I won't even be able to skim the surface of it. Um, I feel like I would have to study it for years. Uh, and then in John 17, the end of the Upper Room Discourse, there's just this prayer, um, often called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. So um, what I would recommend in this section is just... Um, you know, do your daily readings, but maybe try to read the whole section a couple of times in the next four or five days, just to get a feel for um, some things that Jesus is going to repeat. And I, I would like you to look for these, I would like us to look for these answers, because I don't even know them off the top of my head, but I want to look for them um, in this scripture that we're, that we're encountering, John 13 through 17. Um, the questions are, who are Jesus' own, right? Um, it says he loved his own who were in the world. So this is special. This is not just um, a blanket statement. I love everybody in the world. This is he loved his own who were in the world. Um, that's, that's one question. Um, second question, why are they his? What is it that if, if he loves them in a way that he doesn't love the rest of the world, why? Why are they his? What is it that makes his own his own? Because he's doing something for his own here, loving them to the end, that he's not doing for the ones that are not his own. So keep that in mind. Um, and then the third question is, how did he love them to the end? How did Jesus love his own to the end? How did he demonstrate that? What is, what is he about to do? What is he talking to them about? So, um, key verse there in loving his own to the end. Um, there's some character stuff happening here um, that's really interesting. It's um, Judas kind of being identified and about to about to go out from the rest of them, um, about to separate himself. Um, and then Peter, obviously, we we just mentioned is really struggling here. And we're going to see the struggle of Peter even until the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And if you're like me, you can really identify. Um, I can definitely identify with Peter. Often being conflicted, um, being passionate, but not quite knowing um, how to apply that passion to the situation. Um, Jesus is so gracious to Peter, as we'll see. Um, so let's go into the second part of John 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, continued. So when he had washed their feet, put his outer garment back on, and sat down again, 
he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You say so correctly, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should also do as I have done to you. Most certainly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is one who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I tell you before it happens, that when it happens, you may believe that I am he. Most certainly I tell you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Most certainly I tell you that one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was at the table, leaning against Jesus' breast. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he speaks. He, leaning back as he was on Jesus' breast, asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, It is he to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the piece of bread, then Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now nobody at the table knew why he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, Buy what things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Therefore, having received that morsel, he went out immediately. It was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. Little children, I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you can't come, so now I tell you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I am going, you can't follow now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you.
Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Most certainly, I tell you, the rooster won't crow until you have denied me three times. Okay, so there's a lot going on here, Um, especially the stuff with Judas kind of um, being sort of revealed, but nobody really understanding what's happening, and then he goes out. Um, But the things I want to focus on here, uh, first, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and that jumped out at me because we, we saw before that he was groaning and weeping, um at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus, let's say this, Jesus was a real man. Uh, Christian doctrine affirms that Jesus was all man and all God. Let's focus on that man part for a second. He had real human emotions. Um, I believe that Jesus was capable of stronger emotions than any of us are. Because he was without sin. So if you uh, look at evil in the world and, and feel conflicted and, and sorrowful about it, Jesus feels even more than that. Jesus was troubled in his spirit here, <clears throat> apparently concerning Judas. Um, but just to kind of flesh out that picture of Jesus, um, I think often we get this idea that holiness is disaffection. Um, you know, uh, like, um, like a, like a holy man is some kind of like in this Zen like state, um, you know, or wears special clothes and, um, walks a certain way so that that person looks holy. Um, that is just silly. (laughs) That's not holiness. Holiness is what Jesus is demonstrating for us here in John. He is a real person with real emotions and yet without sin and always righteous. And he is showing us the Father. He is showing us what God is like. So um, even though God never changes, um, Jesus, as a man, demonstrates emotions um, which show us in a sense, how the Father feels about things. God may be in control of everything. I'm a big believer in that. God um, is working all things together for good. But that doesn't mean that that God, specifically Christ, is disaffected by things. It doesn't mean that, um, that we should think of him in such a way that he has absolutely no emotional status. Now, I think we have to be really careful with that um, because a lot of theologians will say that if you imply that God has emotions, then you're implying that he has, uh, that he changes or that he doesn't know what's going to happen. But I think scripture at least clearly shows us this, that we might not be able to say that God um, is emotional in the sense that we are, but we can say that God feels certain ways about things and that he condescends through the language of scripture to show us 
his mind on certain things, even though his thoughts are infinitely above ours, he condescends to show us his mind on things and that Christ is doing that here. So um, he was troubled in his spirit. He was groaning at the grave of Lazarus. And I think this is important for two reasons. Number one, Jesus was righteous and sinless. And, and he was righteous and sinless even with emotions, right? Um, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Jesus got angry, but he didn't sin, okay? Jesus got troubled, but he didn't despair into a sinful state. And it shows us that we can have emotions and that the goal is not to have some kind of emotionless peace. Now, I have to mention this because in our world, I, I strongly believe that we are being sold a manufactured version of peace. We can manufacture this in lots of different ways. Um, I think the most popular is probably mindfulness. Um, the idea of being mindful. Um, or if you go back a little bit further, positive thinking. Um, you could list all kinds of things that fall sort of into this category. Um, trying to say all this carefully. Um, this, this idea of, uh, it's basically a Buddhist type idea that, that everything is all one. So everything is okay. So everything, um, we should make peace with those things. We, we are almost disaffected by them, by contemplation, but I'm nervous because I'm, I know I'm, I'm going to offend a few people, but I'll just list things that are both good and bad, potentially, okay? Um, natural living, um, just trying to be as natural as possible. You know, my, me and my family, we avoid chemicals. We try to eat healthy. Um, holistic living, exercise, drugs, um, whether, you know, um, so-called uh, natural drugs or, or otherwise, um, Lots of different things. Um, yoga, um, even, I would say even prayer could fall into this category because some people look at prayer as a, um, a psychological um, or, I don't know the right word, maybe physiological um, benefit, right? So like um, hospitals sometimes will encourage you to pray. And, and in this view, it doesn't really even matter who you're praying to, it it calms you down. It has a benefit to it. Let me just say that even though there's good and bad kind of mixed in, in most of those things, um, and I think even certain therapy could fall into this category, uh, this is not the piece that Christ is going to be talking about here. It's not a piece that we can manufacture um, through methods or through um, just not thinking about things or, or, um, or pushing things out of our mind or whatever, wherever you want to go with that. So I just want to encourage you, um, as Christ is about to describe the kind of peace that will not trouble your heart, he says, let not your heart be troubled in the next chapter. And yet this says that he was troubled in his spirit. Well, was he sinning? 
was he breaking his own command? He says, let it, let not your heart be troubled. But then it said that he was troubled in his spirit. We see this also in Paul, I think in Philippians or Colossians. Um, I think it's Philippians where he says, um, be anxious for nothing. But in the same book, he actually says a couple times that he's anxious for the churches. So all that to say that dear Christian, brother and sister in Christ, you are supposed to experience emotions. There will be times when you are even, we would categorize it as depressed. There'll be times when you're troubled, be times when you're excited. Those emotions in and of themselves are not sinful and they're not something that should just be avoided or um, uh, something where you need to find a method to get away from those emotions. But that all of those emotions, all those human emotions should be experienced and run through um, Christ himself by his Holy Spirit. That, that you come to Christ with all of your emotions because Christ had emotions himself. And, and if we deny that, then we deny the humanity of Christ and then he can't be our savior. Christ was human. He was all man and all God. He had real emotions and yet in his emotions he didn't sin. In his trouble of spirit, he somehow did not let his heart be troubled in the sense that he's going to advise us against. So I know that's a little uh, complicated and I, I've tried not to, but maybe I've stepped on some toes there. But I want you to just think about that because this whole upper room discourse is for your peace. It is so that you have the peace of Christ, not a manufactured peace where you have to keep going back to the well, but living water that overflows um, unto eternal life. Um, a couple other things to mention here is that as soon as Judas goes out, Jesus knows the cross is coming. And what does he say? That this is the time when he's going to be glorified. This is the glory of Christ. That he died for us. That he died for his own who were in the world and loved them to the end, to the point of death. Without sin, full of love, and rises from the dead. Um and in glory. He's seated at the right hand of God right now. We haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> but that that is how the story ends. Um, and then kind of in all those things that we just talked about is this commandment that he gives us to love one another. And I want to challenge us there too that we not think about love. Don't let the world define what love is. And then say, Jesus told us to love one another. Let Jesus Christ define what love is. And then love one another. And then the world will say there's something different. Does that make sense? If we allow the world to define what love is. And then we quote Christ and say, well, Jesus said to love one another. But we're operating under the world's definition of love, of love that perhaps doesn't have this real emotion to it, of love that um, is not ready to um, 
to make distinctions between things of love that's more nice than radical. <laughs> I don't think we should do that because then love one another becomes meaningless. It doesn't show us, um, it doesn't show the world that we are Christ, apostrophe us. But if we allow Jesus to define what love is, and then we love one another that way, it will be evident that we are his disciples and it will glorify him as much as we can. So I love you all. Um, even if I don't know you, I, I pray right now that you are seeing Christ. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. And I hope you have a great day. Bye.